This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. September 29th, 2022. It's the Is the Polling Wrong edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C., joined by John Dickerson of CBS's Prime Time with John Dickerson from New York City. Hello, John Dickerson. Hello, David. And from New Haven, Connecticut, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello. This week on the GabFest, is the midterm polling going to be catastrophically wrong for Democrats the way it was in 2016 and 2020? Then we will puzzle over the almost incomprehensibly grotesque Mississippi welfare scandal. And then we'll talk about the victory of neo-fascist Georgia Maloney in Italy's election with scholar Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And before we get to any of that, we have a huge announcement. We're going to be live in Atlanta on Where, Wednesday, David? November 2nd. Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta! What you're saying is Atlanta? The state. Atlanta. Wednesday, November 2nd, 7 p.m. at Georgia Tech's first center for the arts, slate.com slash GabFest Live. So excited. Are you guys excited? We had an amazing crowd. Oh, my God. I just bought my plane tickets. I got my hotel reservation. I'm ready to go. It's uh, We had a great show last time we were there, and we're coming right before, of course, Georgia has one of the most important Senate elections in the country and a wild, a wild one and a wild governor's race. So join us, slate.com slash live on Wednesday, November 2nd in Atlanta, slate.com slash GabFest live. John, I bet it's even this moment preparing an epic Cocktail chatter. He's probably he's he's holed away, squirreled away. Oh to my spend god! The next month on his epic cocktail chatter. Actually, I think I do ha- have a chatter. The the danger though is when you think like, oh, that'll be great, and then when you like sink into it a couple days beforehand, you think, oh, actually, this is totally boring, and then the panic sets in. Is the polling wrong, John? Yes, it was badly wrong in 2020, 2016, slightly wrong in 2018. How might it be wrong right now? I said yes immediately because the polling is often not wrong. It's our expectations for the polling and our overreading of the polling that's wrong. And even when the polling is wrong, we kind of say it's wrong for the wrong reasons. So in 2016, the national polling about Hillary Clinton was right. The polling in some states was right. It's just in states like Ohio, it was wrong. So um, and there, and there. Then you can have a conversation about state level polling, which states have good pollsters and which states don't have good pollsters, and that tells you something about polling and about specific states. Um, and that's that's smart. But um, the kind of oh, the polls are wrong um, is a problem. And I wish somebody with a with a huge brain could um, kind of untangle the imprecision of polls, which is baked into them and match that with the imprecision we experienced in our understanding of COVID as it evolved. You know, another moving picture that we were trying to understand in real time and that we had some great difficulty talking about. Um, you know, we look at the track of hurricanes um, and uh, we have a lot of great ideas about where it might go, but then when it hits landfall, it goes somewhere else and it does slightly different things than people thought. And if we thought of polls more like meteorology, um, that would probably be more healthy. And and then I guess the final point is, are they wrong in this specific instance? 
We don't know. There's polling being right or wrong. And then there's the guessing about whether polling is right or wrong. That is right or wrong. So you get very um, detached from where things actually are. But I, if I was to say one thing that that is, I think that matters is actually it doesn't have to do with polling at all. It has to do with recent history, um, which is that um, Republicans are likely because the out party wins since World War II, the out party wins I have an average of, I can't remember, I think it's like 28 seats or so. Um, in this case, what's different about this election is that Republicans picked up a number of seats in the um, 2020 race. They picked up 15 House seats in 2020, um, which means that the traditional thing, which is the out party wins in a midterm election, the Republicans have picked up some of that in 2020. So if their losses are small, if sorry, if their their net pickup of seats in 2022 is smaller than um, some people might have expected, that's not a thing that has to do with polling. It has to do with the fact that Republicans have kind of already won some of their races in the last election, which will make it historically, potentially historically different than before. My concern about the polls is twofold. One, Nacone points out that Democrats are un- overperforming versus expectations in precisely the places that the polls showed them up, where they ended up losing or having very close races in 2020. So Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. That there were Democrats. They right. were polling way ahead in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in particular. And like a little ahead in places like North Carolina and then lost. So, or it was extremely close. So if you imagine the same kind of bias in the polls, you think, oh, well, those races actually are super tight. And when I was reading for um, to prepare for the show today, it seems like most of the polling companies haven't really changed their methodology. They're counting on the idea. Some of them had tweaked it a little bit, but they're counting on the idea that because Trump's not on the ballot, the same challenges don't exist. And I'm really skeptical of that. I mean, now I'm super influenced by my son, Simon Bazelon, who works for uh, Blue Rose, uh, the Democratic polling firm. But what he talks about a lot is this problem of low social trust among the kinds of voters that the pollers miss who do go to the polls, who tend to be more conservative. So yes, they're Trump voters, but they also would be Republican voters in the midterm. And the problem here is just that most people do not pick up their phone anymore. And this particular cohort of people really doesn't pick up their phone and answer pollsters' questions. And so they just get missed. I mean, do you guys think generally, so this summer it did feel like when those things were pinging, they were pinging in a direction that was favorable to Democrats, that Dobbs seemed to be mobilizing women voters in particular. There were gas prices were falling. The Republicans, I mean, this thing has not changed. They have some extremely bad candidates in key races. But on the other hand, now, a lot of those wins, those wins either seem to have shifted or they seem to be like they're cross, cross, I don't know if wins can be cross currents, but the wins are cross currents. In particular, I feel like this immigration, this grotesque immigration play that DeSantis and Abbott have been pushing has, in fact, from a political perspective, gotten the conversation, the national conversation a little bit back towards immigration, which is an issue that is very good for Republicans and bad for Democrats. I mean, the other thing is historically polls tighten toward the end and the out party in a midterm election 
um, is the beneficiary of that. So that's not a problem with the polls. Those are the polls we haven't gotten yet that may well show the race tightening. And the factors that you were just laying out, David, they would all contribute to that. I mean, the more the country is thinking about immigration and inflation, the worse for Democrats. The couple of things you can maybe use to give yourself at least a little more um, confidence in polls that seem to be going one way or the other. We do know that there's um, been an uptick in registration among women voters post Dobbs. So um, so if you see an uptick in women voters post Dobbs and you see a Democrat doing a little better than, say, Joe Biden did in that district or that state, you can, I think, feel a tiny bit more comfortable that abortion is seems to be working in that Democrat's favor, at least more comfortable than you would feel just absent any exterior information and just looking at the poll um, itself. So I think that, you know, that that kind of stuff you can attach to a poll and maybe think. um, But, you know, it's difficult when we say the polls look like they were going this way or look like they were going that way. We don't I mean, that's what they looked like, but we have no idea whether that's connected to the underlying the underlying facts. I think it's also you know, when we're talking about immigration, you also on the abortion front, you have Doug Mastriano, the governor uh, candidate in Pennsylvania, uh, um, uh, an interview found, I think, in 2019, in which he said um, basically that under his view of abortion, that women that that women who get abortions um, should be charged with murder. That's the kind of thing that um, when you have an activated group of voters on an issue they care deeply about and where we've seen some evidence that their voting behavior is connected to that deep belief, an idea like that could really push in, in these races more than we might otherwise think. What is the value of public polling? I understand the value of private polling for campaigns that they need to, to determine what they issues they're going to push on. And I understand strategically why they do that. But what value does public polling serve the public? I mean, it would be so interesting to run an experiment, which we will never run, of having no public polling to see how it affects the choices people make with limited resources, right? Because, I mean, the argument for polling, I think, is that media attention and money donations are limited resources, and you have to decide how to allocate them. And so if you're, you know, a donor thinking about which congressional race to give to in the country, you're not just thinking about your own local race, then someone being closer or further away from winning who you might support would affect your decision. And similarly, if you're deciding which races to pay attention to because you're a political reporter and you have a choice. But maybe those choices that we make that are shaped by polling are actually like poor choices for the democracy, and we'd be better off making them absent that information. Well, your first point seems to be in in support of private polling, because, you know, private polling would make those donations, and that's fine for advocates and parties. I mean, if you're an advocate of a certain point of view and ideology, then polling is absolutely crucial um, to figure out how to basically regain power. But if we believe uh, that in the public interest, which is your interesting question, David, um, polls whips, you know, totally distort our images of the race. And also they don't really get at what's important either. And I don't just mean on issues. I mean about how people think about issues. Um, You know, the 90 billionth question about what, you know, what do you think of Donald Trump? I mean, on the one hand, it's important because he is driving the Republican Party. 
Um, and so the extent to which people feel close connections or, or don't feel close connections, um, that influences the behavior of all kinds of people, including the Florida governor who's reacting to a hurricane. And his political view of the world is influenced by polls. But now at this point, you have kind of polls chasing themselves. Um, uh, but in terms of teeing up the questions about what people think about um, the polling questions I like the most or what people think about the role of government, whether people think that um, various different kinds of Americans have a better shot at the American dream or not, what people think the American dream is, whether they think it's okay to use political violence when you don't get uh, your way. The polling that's shown that partisans think more negatively of people of the other party, I think that's all of that is important and interesting, but none of it is the kind of horse race poll we've been talking about. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. We do a bonus Slate Plus segment, and we are excited. This week, we're going to crash ourselves into an asteroid. We're going to talk about the DART mission that um, NASA sent to explore how we might be able to defend ourselves against a wayward asteroid coming to destroy humanity. And it was fascinating. So we had probably gone a whole decades without talking about Mississippi on this podcast, and now we are about to talk about it for the second time in a few weeks. Uh, we recently talked about the appalling Jackson water crisis, and today we are talking about an issue that seems superficially somewhat different, but it's actually, I would say, highly connected, the Mississippi welfare scandal. I'm going to try to summarize it really briefly, and I wrote myself, I'm going to try to summarize it really briefly, and then there's like massive amount of text but here we I'm go i'm gonna appreciate go. your slightly longer okay. summary because it's complicated okay S -s since the welfare reform since the welfare reform of the mid-90s states have received block grants of welfare funds rather than the this afdc we now have tanf temporary assistance to needy families and it comes as a block grant and states can either spend that money uh on direct cash assistance assistance to families or they can indirectly spend that money on programs that are supposed to encourage work or support families or encourage marriage. They have these, there are various uh, advice about or uses that states can, can put this, these funds to. Many states, particularly red states, have essentially abandoned giving actual cash to actual poor people. Only four in 100 poor families in Mississippi gets cash, cash assistance compared to 70 in 100 in California. Instead, what these states have done is have huge slush funds that are supposed to be spent on causes that help poor people. And now, thanks to dogged reporting from Mississippi Today and some investigation by rather reluctant state auditors, we now know that about $80 million in those TANF funds in the last few years, which is a really significant portion of the total, it seems to be about 20% of the total funds, were effectively stolen by Mississippi cronies and celebrities and spent on crap, spent on the drug rehab of some rich person who was a wrestler, a non-existent coding school that someone was not teaching at but was getting paid to not teach at a coding school that didn't exist, on first-class flights, and notably for the benefit of Brett Favre, the NFL quarterback who got millions of dollars channeled to his University of Southern Mississippi uh, his, where he graduated and where his daughter was a playing volleyball to help fund a volleyball arena there. Um, and also he got a bunch of dubious funding for a pharmaceutical startup that he was involved in too. So it's grotesque. It's stealing millions from the poorest people to line your pockets and aggrandize yourself. In the state that ranks 47th among U.S. states in the amount of money it spends. I mean, in the state that needs it the most, the people in charge of giving money to the poor 
were using it for their own purposes and not to help them. It's like, it's, you could, I mean, it's basically as bad as it gets. I guess there, you could imagine things that are worse, but boy, it's a real contender for being totally awful. Of course, it implicates Brett Favre, but also everyone who's been involved in the welfare program, the past governor, the current governor seems to like, does not seem like he's necessarily going to escape uh, obligation here or guilt here. Um, certainly his, his, the current governor's trainer got a million dollars. Practically everyone who is in the power elite of the state of Mississippi is lining their pockets. Lining their pockets and protecting other people who lined their pockets. So the current governor, Tate Reeves, um, pulled off of um, the civil lawsuit that was going to try to claw back some of this money, the lawyer who was aggressively pursuing the former governor and other political allies of the current governor. And so there's a, that's another way in which it just seems like it continues to implicate people. And the state, after that lawyer exited, made some what looked like odd decisions about who to sue, leaving out people who would seem to... Um, be people the state would want to go after because the news has reported that they got some of this money. Um, you know, the other thing is to talk about this in the wake of the water crisis in Jackson. I mean, we talked about how Mississippi is a poor state and doesn't have resources. Well, what about these resources? I mean, there's just something so just, inc- ugh, I don't know. I mean, it just is so frustrating. One in five people in Mississippi live in poverty. That's the worst in the nation. of those live in poverty are children. I mean, it's, it is so grotesque. And I think the numbers, I guess there were, were there two numbers? Um, There's the $94 million number. And then there's some other potential chance that there's another 72 million that might've been uh, abused here. This is also a case where to use the line of Mike Kinsley, the scandal is not what's illegal it's what's legal well the hopefully fact- some of it was also illegal because well some of it's also illegal get it's in def- trouble. but yes continue there were a lot of lawyers working on this it but seems. it's the idea that you can basically not this money which is federal money this is our taxpayer money which has been earmarked for mississippi its share in the block ramp and the idea that actually this money which is supposed to be benefit the poor can really be spent in these completely orthogonal ways which don't really benefit the poor the, the, the way you benefit poor people is you give them money so that they have like more opportunities in their lives so that their children are slightly less poor so that they have you know maybe they can pay to get their car fixed so they can get to a job so that they are they they have slightly more tools and and thus are able to participate more in society that's how you help poor people but instead it's like this bullshit oh, we're going to teach people how to be married better. Like, as of that, that is what federal welfare spending should be spent on, is teaching people how to be married better. That's just, it's ridiculous. What's, what is mildly interesting here about the 1996 welfare law is that um, David Leonard and Jason DeParle, both when they looked at the recent child poverty numbers, um, made a complex argument that basically part of the reason the child numbers, poverty numbers have gone down so much nationally is in part as a result of the um, requirements that were a part of that 96 law, which are tied to this block grant um, work requirements. Not all of it, but that there was some contributory factor that actually benefited in reducing child poverty. So 
I think the complexity here is that that um, those block grant requirements are not in all cases awful. It's just that Mississippi, when given the opportunity to spend the money itself, engaged in you know excellence in awfulness in um, screwing the people who have um, the least opportunity. And the other thing I would say is I was reading as I was reading up on this, I was reminded of Annie Lowry's piece on the time tax. Um, you know, which is the idea basically to get any public uh, funds, it requires this Byzantine hoop jumping. And as the um, chief of uh, an operation or an organization called Springboard to Opportunities said, you know, um, uh, uh, Aisha Neandoro, I think is how you pronounce her name. She said they make it so incredibly difficult for families that need these resources to get it. But then others who don't need it can just send a text message and money magically appears in their bank account. Um, you know, it's not just that it's awful. It, it's that the the people who do receive the trickle of money that um, these um, orcs uh, make it so difficult to get is just impossible to get that money itself. So, it, uh. <laughs> I I want to go back to TANF and the states because I think it's important not to let other states off the hook here. I mean, my state of Connecticut has a low uptake rate for TANF in terms of um, the percentage of people in poverty who receive it. And the switch to TANF happened when I was in law school. And it what I remember because I like wrote a big paper and interviewed a lot of TANF recipients was all the strings that started being attached to receiving money if you were a poor family, which, you know, just goes to your point, John, about the time tax. It just seems really clear that if you make people jump through a million hoops, you're going to lose them along the way. And it was deliberate. I mean, this was a response to welfare. Um, It was blatantly racist. You know, people, conservatives in particular, were had this image of, you know, the welfare queen that our colleague Josh Levine wrote about, this notion that people were just like sitting at home having a lot of kids and that that was not something that, you know, American society should support. And it was totally inflected with this image that it was black women who were doing this. It was really corrosive. And in theory, it should be a good idea to give states more power over to spend federal money for social welfare because the states should know their own needs. But if you don't, um, if you don't have enough strings attached for the states to make sure it's actually going to get to poor people and social services, this is where you end up in this world in which most poor people can't get this money because it's time limited or there's like a really onerous work requirement, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a deep irony in the fact that there are some American cities now that are really turning to just giving cash to people because they've figured out that that is the cheapest and most effective way to help them. And at the same time, you have a state like Mississippi that is literally literally fleecing the pockets of the most wealthy, privileged people with some of this money. Why do you think they felt that they could get away with it? And they almost have, and probably a lot of them will. They, I mean, they did fire a lawyer who was investigating. They've slow walked the auditing. Um, but why do they feel they could act with such impunity? It is obvious to anyone who looks at this for one second that this is an act of, of moral degradation and that any person involved should feel just profound shame should feel moral shame and 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 humiliation and embarrassment and yet people went ahead and did it to the tune of millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and didn't give a fuck so i think they 
conveniently forgot or stopped thinking about the idea that this was money for poor people. I think they thought it was government money. I mean, the, so shout out to Mississippi Today and in particular Anna Wolf, a reporter there, for the coverage she did and all the text messages they published. Because, you know, you read that coverage, you can really sort of put together the breadcrumbs over time of these revelations. And what seems clear is that, you know, somebody set up a separate nonprofit. In fact, there seem to be like a few different nonprofit organizations that are essentially like shell corporations to launder this money through. And that the whole thinking was like this was government money. And probably someone had this idea that this volleyball stadium stadium at the University of Mississippi was some form of economic development or was going to have some social benefit. And so it's somehow counted as TANF spending. It's like they they forgot that it was just going to look like they were robbing poor people. And their references to like, oh, our lawyers are working on how to do this, which suggests that they had some idea there was a way to do this that was compliant, legally speaking, right? I mean, Phil Bryant, the former governor, is making a joke about how he's too old to go to jail. So there was some notion of risk, but also of that they could skip right past the legal well, risk. Well, and, and this is where... Um we should shuffle the desiccated body of Brett Favre onto the stage because his texts um, in which he's trying to find a way um, in one of the texts, he says, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much, which seems like an incredibly damning text. But his lawyer's position is um, that he didn't know that this was happening, um, didn't realize the source of the funds. And um, in one of the articles, a, a, a professor of sports philanthropy at, at George Washington University affirmed that notion that basically you can sometimes not know where these grants are coming from. But if he didn't know where the grant was coming from, then the question is, why is he asking if the media can um, find out and doing all of these things that um, hide his true intent um, and also, let me add another question to that, which is, um, why, Emily, is he not being charged criminally? Is that just um, because that hasn't happened yet? Or Brett Favre, I mean, because um, others have been criminally charged. Um, but he is being civilly sued. Yeah, I don't really understand the logic of who's being criminally charged versus this civil lawsuit that the state is bringing. It's like the names don't match up. And I assume it has something to do with the burden of proof that's necessary and decisions prosecutors are making about the particular evidence they have and how they whether they can show criminal intent but it just all seems very odd right the criminal it's, i think if you if far can make a credible argument that he didn't know where the money was coming from well then maybe it's harder to show criminal intent whereas the people who have been charged include the people who've run the welfare agencies who obviously know that this is money intended to improve human welfare. It does seem though like one of those questionable not questionable but incomplete set of punishments potentially where the people are actually doing the doling out get in trouble but then the people they were really benefiting namely Favre and you know the former governor are not they seem to be so far skating i don't know it's a little hard to tell but that's what it looks like can we close this topic by connecting it back to the jackson scandal i i mean there is this clearly tied together this notion that the poor people of the state don't deserve to be served that they and black people don't deserve to be served. I think it, and that they, that 
the sort of outsiders and their federal money is just meddling, leave us alone, we'll deal with it ourselves. But I do think it has something to do with the fact that it's a one-party state, that when you have a one-party state, essentially it allows you to write off huge portions of the population because you know you don't have any, there's no consequence to neglecting them. And and that that's what ties these two things together, is that that because poor people and black poor people in Mississippi have no effective political power in the state. They can be uh, stolen from, mistreated, allowed to drink, you know, wastewater, because what are they going to do? Now we're joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and the author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. So Ruth, welcome to the GabFest. Thank you. For most Americans, insofar as they think about Italian politics, which they don't very much, it's as kind of a joke with governments, oh, governments fall every year, bunga bunga, Berlusconi. Who is Giorgia Maloney and why should we pay attention to her? Why does this manifestation of Italian political extremism matter? Well, it matters because uh, she is the first prime minister, she's the first female prime minister, but uh, more relevant is she's the first uh, prime minister to come from a neo-fascist background. And what this means is when Mussolini, uh, you know, went out in flames and the fascist party was banned after World War II, a neo-fascist party called Italian Social Movement was founded. And unlike in Germany, uh, this, the Allies allowed this to happen. And so it was a legitimate party. It became the fourth largest party by the 60s. But she came up through, she chose to be a militant, like hardcore militant in this movement. And she became the head of the student wing. And so she's very connected even today to this party and, she, and her own party that's uh, now in power, Brothers of Italy, was founded in 2012. But the reason it was founded is because at the time there was no autonomous extreme right party. And she wanted to carry on the tradition of neo-fascism. And so another party elder, who's the vice president of the Senate, Ignazio La Russa said the other day, we are all heirs of Il Duce. And so that kind of tells you that these people are not uh, former fascists. They're not conservatives, as they say. They are uh, neo-fascists, and this is what they're bringing into the government. What does neo-fascism mean? Neo-fascism, it, it, it's, it's, it was created to keep, uh, keep alive the ideals of um, one-party government, of strong leadership, of, you could say, of imperialism, of repression of, uh, of minorities. And you see, in fact, Brothers of Italy, uh, you know, Maloney's gone, has said she doesn't want any mosques being built in Italy, that you have to speak Italian. She's against what she calls LGBTQ lobbies. She's for white Christian civilization. And, and so these are some of the same ideals as, uh, as fascism had. And so um, you could argue, you know, that things have changed today, that you don't shut down elections, you don't have as many one-party states um, where you're, you know, killing off leftists. But neo-fascism, the reason it's called that is it still keeps alive those ideals. What do you think this means for immigration to Italy? I mean, that seemed one issue where the neo-fascist approach was very anti-immigrant. And I could sort of 
understand immediately what the implications might be. Yeah, in Italy, because of its position uh, surrounded by the Mediterranean and the Adriatic, has, you know, a long uh, history of very, uh, you know, draconian immigration measures. And it's important, her partners in this governing coalition are the League Party, very far-right racist party, an an explicitly anti-immigrant party. And its leader, Matteo Salvini, was actually investigated for criminal charges for turning back boats of immigrants when he was interior minister. And he said in 2018, he called for, quote, mass cleansings of immigrants. So this is a violent, racist person. The other uh, partner, Silvio Berlusconi, used to be prime minister. He was the first in Europe to detain and demonize immigrants in the early 2000s. So what we can expect from this governing coalition is, you know, very harsh, repressive measures against immigrants turning back boats, no matter what the human rights consequences, and also um, spikes in hate crimes against immigrant communities, uh, you know, already in Italy. Ruth, how do the economic interests play out specifically with respect to immigrants under pressure from a variety of economic shocks that result from the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. You could imagine one scenario in which there would be uh, public support for that. You know, resources are scarce. We don't want any new immigrants. On the other hand, there is at least some business lobby in America that is pro-immigration um, because of you know the lack of jobs. Um, so what's the, how does that play out the immigration position um, in terms of Italy's larger economic interests? It's not clear what, what this government is going to do. Um, and there could be, in a way, substantial continuity uh, in certain ways, because a lot of things are decided at the local level. Italy is a, very, is a country where local authorities have a huge amount of power, and this was by design um, as, a, as a, um, the new constitution, which was made after fascism, didn't want... They wanted to have a lot of checks on central authority, so regional and local. So we'll have to see. What we can know is in places where um, Maloney's party already governs, not only have they tried to take away um, access to abortion rights for women, but there's also been uh, attempts to, um, you know, make it very difficult for immigrants to get uh, social welfare assistance. So we can expect... Just as in the states, we're looking to, um, you know, places like Florida and Texas that the Republicans would like to scale up these illiberal measures. We can look in Italy to places where Brothers of Italy and the League already govern and see what kind of oppressive measures will be scaled up um, nationally. You're a scholar of, of authoritarians broadly, and we see... Italy, of course, is not the only country in Europe which is grappling with a far-right rise. Sweden, Hungary has a has an illiberal fascistic leader. Some in France, little bits in Germany, UKIP and Brexit. There's this continent-wide rise in extreme right-wing parties and a kind of a global rise, too. Is immigration the driving force that is causing this rise? Or is immigration really a proxy for other economic issues or cultural issues that is causing these parties to to thrive? It's both. It is it is uh, an issue in itself for racist um, for parties that uh, 
their framework is about racism. And here it's important that this is neo-fascist because the first, you know, we all think of racism in, in the original fascism, we think of Hitler. But it was actually Mussolini who isn't well understood, who in the 1920s before Hitler came in, he talked about um, rescuing white Christian civilization. He talked about his version of great replacement theory. I have quotes in Strongman where he says that, you know, non-white peoples are having so many babies that white, whites will be extinguished. And Maloney uh, has a very extreme version of um, great replacement theory. She's to the right of Tucker Carlson, if that's possible. Um, she says that not only there are demographic changes where uh, whites are challenged uh, demographically, but there's actually a plot. She calls it a plan or a design in Italian by George Soros and the EU to flood um, Europe with, you know, non-white immigrants and depress wages for white people. That's John. That's the economic part. And also to, of course, extinguish white Christian civilization. So immigration is extremely central. At the same time, it's, it is a proxy because when did, when did this latest wave of uh, the far right start? It was after the 2008 financial crisis and disillusionment with globalization. And so what happened in Italy is also a protest vote against uh, the center left, which made some strategic mistakes in not allying, allying with other parties but also has been seen as too elitist and too establishment and not having um, good economic or emotional uh, outreach to people who are hurting financially. There was this extended moment where uh, Mario Draghi was the um, prime minister of Italy. He was an economist. He was kind of brought in as the quintessential technocrat to get them back on track economically. And... Um, it just seems like such a good idea. I don't know. Maybe that's dumb, but I liked this idea that you could Spoken have spoken like kind a true global elitist. <laughs> totally, I such a global elitist thing to say, but it just seemed like Italy was kind of spinning out of control, and so you bring in the economist, and he fixes everything, and then it just completely fell apart. Um, so does that just prove that I'm utterly wrong? That that was never a good idea. You should not do such a thing. Or is there some explanation for the um, for this change? Well, let's put it this way. Um, the, there is this tradition of uh, technocratic governments in Italy. And they set off a reaction because people like Mario Draghi, although they are, uh, can indeed be good for the economy, they are tied into the exact kind of, quote, globalist establishment elites that the, um, I don't use the word populist very often, but it's appropriate here, that the far-right populists around the world are theoretically against. In reality, all of this uh, kind of anti-globalist is total BS, because who is more globalist than Steve Bannon, who worked for Wall Street? Who is more globalist than Donald Trump, whose entire business model was licensing his name abroad and laundering money for multiple foreign actors. So all of this, the same with Orban, same with Putin, who keeps his money in offshore finance networks. It's all bullshit. But it works for people. So Draghi, Draghi's time there was seen as exactly the type of control of elites that Maloney's been railing against. And so then her appeals to oppose 
these foreign elites in the name of the people, she sounds like a patriot. She sounds authentic. And that's the strength of these right-wing populists. They, they claim and they seem to represent the people's interests. And Salvini was saying the same thing years ago. Uh, so this is, this is the crux of the matter. It, it, it seemed to prove the, uh, the claims of these people, and that participated, I think, uh, to their success now. How charismatic, for lack of a better word, is Maloney? Um, in other words, could she continue once in power, kind of distinct from her actual success, um, to build a build political support and kind of um, gain gain currency? Um, and then kind of connected to that, I'd love if you'd just expound on something you told me um, when we had our conversation on television. Um, when you talked about the the mechanisms the EU has um, if Italy becomes too illiberal. It's really interesting that the EU has been very slow to respond to one of its uh, biggest challenges, which is Viktor Orban, who... You know, again, he's an opportunist. Of course, he's going to take EU money and then bash the EU, right? And and be in Putin's pocket in some ways. So recently, the EU um, formulated a uh, r- rule of law conditionality clause, meaning, and they're starting to apply it to Hungary. If you wreck democracy, and they recently issued a statement that Hungary is no longer a full democracy, they can freeze or reduce your funds. So they're finally having some leverage. And so it's important as a precedent because if Maloney, I don't think she will do this, but if Maloney uh, pursued some kind of, uh, you know, uh, radical economic agenda or, uh, you know, violated human rights or started very aggressively to uh, wreck democracy, Again, I don't think she'll do that. And we have to remember that Orban's, Orban's been in power for over 10 years. These things happen gradually. The EU would have a mechanism to punish Italy. Maloney is a pragmatist. Um, she's very good at, um, like Mussolini was, at kind of courting different sectors of society. And you'll notice she's trying to say she's a conservative, um, which was advice that Bannon gave her. She's very close with Steve Bannon. Um, and so you'll hear in the American rights, you know, everybody's saying, oh, she's a conservative, she's a patriot. But uh, the video, it's on YouTube of a rally that she um, spoke at in Spain at the uh, far-right party Vox. She is screaming, and she honestly, I don't say this lightly, I almost never say this, she reminds me of Mussolini. Si el trabajo en nuestros ciudadanos, no a las grandes finanzas internacionales, si a la soberanía de los pueblos, no a las burócratas de Bruselas, y si a nuestra civilización, y no a quienes quieren destruirlo. ¡Viva Macarena Dona, presidente de Andalucía! ¡Viva Santiago Oscar, presidente de España! ¡Viva España! ¡Viva Italia! She's a demagogue, and demagogues can be female. And she said yes to the natural family, which is a man and a woman, no to LGBTQ lobbies. And she presented this black and white universe, which is totally fascist. So the content was completely fascist. Mussolini could have given this speech. But, but the demagogue part, and you're asking me about her charisma, 
This is part of the charisma of the strongman, where they beat you into submission like Hitler did, like screaming. And it's very hard for me to watch this video, but it's very instructive. That's the real Maloney. That's the neo-fascist Maloney that she's trying now to cover up. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is an NYU professor and the author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Ruth, thanks for coming on. That was super interesting. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having an Italian cocktail. What is an Italian cocktail? What are the great Italian cocktails? Negroni. A Campari. Aperol spritz, An Aperol man. spritz. Oh, an Aperol spritz. I had Aperol spritzes when I was in Sicily. When you're having an Aperol spritz, uh, Emily Vazlon, what are you going to be chattering about? Well, I imagine like a lot of people, I am so interested in what's happening in Iran right now with these protests that started over the death of a 22-year-old woman who was taken into police custody because um, her hijab, her head covering wasn't like perfect or something. Anyway, it just seems like this, um, these protests that began with the question of women's rights have really exploded and are now, you know, full on um, uh, attempt to throw out the Iranian regime. And I read a really good interview in The Atlantic with Roya Hakakian, um, who is American, but grew up in Iran, um, that I thought just did a really good job of encapsulating these issues. So I recommend that interview. Um, as a kind of primer on what's happening and also like a good emotional entry point into um, understanding it. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter is about an Atlantic article, um, which is a really just a sort of a, um, it's a recapitulation of Edward R. Murrow's flight on the first, he was the first reporter to go up in a, into a um, plane in, in 1954 and fly into Hurricane Edna. Um, and this has an interesting little um, p- role to play in presidential history because as the networks become obsessed with the live drama of weather, which they can now cover with their cameras, um, it creates a national drama that you then need a president to step on stage to be a player in. Um, and so it sort of begins, uh, you could argue that Murrow's trip into the hurricane begins the um uh, history of presidents and disasters. But more to the point is um, just reading Murrow's uh, account of being up in the hurricane. We all know what hurricanes look like now, but in 1954, not so much. I mean, in terms of their large, um, we, you know, um, these storms and and sort of the way we treat them like they're their own people, giving them names and 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 um, anthropomorphizing their activities. And Murrow does this beautifully. I'm not um, going to read it out loud to you because that'll steal from it, but um, we'll link to it, uh, the article in the Atlantic, which is called What It's Like to Fly into the Eye of a Hurricane. My chatter is an amazing thing from Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen is an actor. I've always thought of him as a British actor, and he is a British actor, I suppose. I uh, played Tony Blair in The Queen. He was in some Twilight movies. He was in Masters of Sex. It turns out, however, that he's actually a Welsh actor, and he's not just a Welsh actor. He's a Welsh actor who was a pretty successful youth soccer player. He was offered a place on the Arsenal youth team as a kid and a huge soccer fan. And a few weeks ago on a TV show, he was asked to give a locker room speech to the Welsh soccer team. The Welsh soccer team has qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 64 years. 
it's actually in a group with the United States and with England. And they're a great team, actually. They've they've some really great players, really fun to watch. And Michael Sheen gave what seemed to be an impromptu speech that had me ready to run through walls. He did another version of it, um, also captured on YouTube, for the actual Welsh team last week. I cannot recommend these speeches enough. And we're going to listen to about a minute of the speech now. When the English come knocking on our door, let's give them some sugar, boys! Let's give them some Welsh sugar! They've always said, we're too small, we're too slow, we're too weak, too full of fear. But Amar Ohid, you sons of speed, as they fall around us, we are still here! Can I watch the TV show of that? I mean, Ted Lasso started with just like an ad. I want like the whole television show that unfurls from that moment. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. I can't. I have no idea whether he it is as impromptu as it seems or whether he's really prepared prepared it. I mean, he's an actor, so presumably he prepared it. I don't care. It's so it's so profound and moving and and you would you would definitely fight at Agincourt for him at that moment. Listeners, you also have chatters for us. You tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest and you email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. Uh, wonderful, wonderful chatters. In fact, some somebody uh, mentioned this as a listener chatter. But our chatter is not about Michael Sheen. It's from Meredith Francis. My chatter is about a Twitter thread from a researcher named Paul Ferry. I hope I'm saying that right. He shared, quote, a list of things people blamed on jazz. So it's a bunch of headlines and excerpts from old newspapers with headlines like, Jazz is blamed for lack of farm labor, and jazz is blamed for warts on feet. And my personal favorite, jazz is blamed for a lack of grace. So I'm sure there are plenty of parallels to be drawn with current discourse today. Thanks. That's really good. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us there. And please go to slate.com slash gabfest live to join us in Atlanta on Wednesday, November 2nd. Slate.com slash gabfest live. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, we'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. If you are like me or like John Dickerson, you were mesmerized this week. Mesmerized by NASA's double asteroid redirection test spacecraft, DART, which was sent to collide with a small asteroid, Dimorphos. And on Monday evening at 7.14 p.m., while John Dickerson was live on the air, live on the air, DART crashed into Dimorphos as part of an experiment to see would it be possible for us to redirect an asteroid that was coming towards Earth that was on a track towards Earth and and how might we do it and so this this little guy this little satellite was sent to to sacrifice their life for us to see whether Wait, it's just a satellite not a person yeah, no actual he's, lives. But he's anthropomorphizing. Too. I'm anthropomorphizing okay, okay, because I felt I, I really felt clear. like this little this little satellite was just 
doing it for us. Okay, I, but it's not a part person. Of it, part or of it, even an animal. No, just, but part of it what was important to me was the sense that this was a creature, that this was a a, okay. a being, a being with will that had given itself. It, its purpose was to to die. Its purpose was to crash. It was to take photographs, get closer and closer and closer, and then to die. And it was so poignant when it when it was it sent no more pictures. John, I'm sure live on the air that must have been terrible for you. You must have felt such a sense of loss. I was on the air with um, Derek Pitts, who's an astronomer um, at uh, the Franklin Institute, <clears throat> and we were watching it together, and and I knew that it might happen while we were on air, but what I didn't really realize is that, so we're talking, and he's saying, you know, and um, he said that, that NASA had, an, I think it was 91 to 96 um, percent estimation of its success, going back to our conversation about polls. Now, there's a confidence interval you want. And, and as we were talking, the image uh, goes from being a little dot on the screen to kind of a larger and larger rock. And what I didn't realize until Derek explained it to me on the air was what we were seeing was the camera on the um, vehicle as it headed towards the rock. And so kind of as it zoomed in the way you were familiar with from your um, smartphone as you take a picture of something across the street, um, that meant it was headed towards success and that ultimately the camera would go out when it bonked it. And um, and so it was just, it was great learning that and then watching it come to be. And it also feels like NASA, especially since Artemis has had so many um, droopy near launches, um, it's just nice for a win on the NASA front. And then finally, it was the it was basically as Derek explained it was something the size of a refrigerator being shot at something the size of uh, one and a half football fields six point eight million miles away which is about twenty eight times the distance to the moon so that's a pretty amazing math problem um, to have been successfully uh, able to do although I understand it'll take two months before we know whether it really knocked the asteroid off its trajectory. Well, what's amazing that all the things you just said are amazing, John. And also what's amazing is that they came up with this experiment that they were like, okay, how can we, how can we see whether we can knock an asteroid off its trajectory? What is a, what is a good way to do it? Is there some place that's close to earth that we can do it? What would be a cool test? And the reason why this was a great place to do a test is that it was, it's not just one asteroid, it's two, it's these two objects that are next to each other and one is circling the small asteroid dimorphos is circling didymos the larger asteroid and by affecting dimorphos they can by, by determining what it, what happens to its orbit around didymos they have learned essentially well what what is the the effect of our flinging this at our satellite into it and so the the brilliance of the experiment is is profound the fact they're able to pull it off the fact that they send the thing so far into space and like you know swing it around things to build up the speed and direct it it's ex just extraordinary and that they do it there's one piece of equipment on board which is a camera one piece of equipment that's all it's doing and it's it's the the human ingenuity involved in this is so amazing i'm it's just awesome I love that it's human ingenuity defending the entire planet as a whole against an inanimate object it has just so much lovely virtue to it. There aren't any living creatures, it seems, that we have to feel bad about killing in the process of defending ourselves. All of us. Right. It's like it's just a total good. I wonder if we're going to discover, though, that you know how we've learned that our uh, our 
forest fire strategy of not allowing forest fires to burn was a really bad mistake that we should have been allowing controlled burn. Maybe we, we should, should have maybe we shouldn't them. be allowing asteroids to smash into us. You think of it as being a total good. It's just like a, it's that, a, that an asteroid destroying earth would just be pure dead weight loss. But maybe there's some reason why you want asteroids to destroy earth. Probably not. That's what we need. We need the slate pitch. That's like, come on, asteroids, come and get us. Here's the benefit. Exactly. I also think John, um, that NASA has a pretty strong broadcast and social media game. As you say, they've had they've had some fails recently. But in general, I I'm always love tuning into NASA's broadcasts and watching them up when they're when they're doing something. And and Mars Rover is doing like the other day. Um, I think Mars Rover. Uh, what was it that they captured the sound of? I think it was some meteor bouncing onto. Um, the surface of Mars, which ended up sounded like a leaky faucet. Um, but uh, I agree. They do. They know um, they, they, they provide good and constant material. Plus the web telescope is constantly dispersing amazing images of things. Um, and, and they get those out very quickly. So you're right. Um, it, it's uh, they've got a good, ratio of um of content to um although they have some pretty good material to work with all right bye slate plus